Our guest today has traveled around Minnesota and other parts of the country to share his presentation titled Honoring Nada Franck, a Native Father's Experience with His Missing and Murdered Indigenous Daughter. Monty Franck oversees emergency management with the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Tribal Police Department and was kind enough to visit Columbia Heights City Hall for this recording, which will be split into two episodes. This episode will feature Monty's story in full, and the next episode will feature our follow-up conversation with him. January is Human Trafficking Prevention Month, and this will be the first of three episodes devoted to the topic of human trafficking. Brief content warning before we get started. Some parts of the story are disturbing, but we hope it brings more understanding and awareness to this very real issue. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to Roll Call, the official Columbia Heights Police Department podcast. I'm Communications Coordinator Ben Sandell. I'm here with co-host Officer Mo Farah and Investigator Tabitha Wood, as well as Chief Lenny Austin. And our special guest today is Monty Franck. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, my name, my, my traditional name is Awan. I'm with the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Tribal Police Department. My given name is Monty Franck, and I oversee tribal emergency management and also community risk reduction efforts for the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe. And I've been a very humble employee for the, for the Mille Lacs Band for 34 years now. So, Monty, I have questions, and I'm sure all of you have mm -hmm. questions, but would you prefer telling your story first and then having the questions after or I think just telling the story first with it would, would be a, a probably a better beginning with that when you're ready um I think we're ready to hear your story thank you for well, being here when we hear the word human trafficking you know we read stories about it we always think it is somebody else's child but in my story it is unique because I work in tribal public safety, and which says this can happen to anybody's family. It isn't a stereotypical view of it, and you realize that this is not just one type of imagery where this happens at. It can happen to any of us, and in my story, it's unique because of my service in public safety. and. When you look at human trafficking in this month, the one thing that so many families don't have is a brotherhood and sisterhood that I have with everybody in this room because we do a career and we do a job that builds a unique bond between brotherhood and sisterhood, whether it's fire, EMS, law enforcement, emergency management, and when bad things happen to one of us, the family comes and supports that individual. And this was very even clear in my story, which a lot will never have. And that was something that, doing another podcast I did called Counter Stories, uh, my cousin who does this said, you know, Monty, that's one thing you had in this journey is you had... You know, you had a almost like a sorority because you belong to the public safety family, which many indigenous and native families don't have. And I never really thought about it in that way until my cousin Don said that. And it was like, you know, that was really true. In my daughter's story, 
it was one of uh, she came to us a little bit, you know, with in her life wise, where uh, in her early life we started seeing behaviors with her that were very concerning. And at that time, within the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe, we were receiving a lot of training on what was called second-generational fetal alcohol children. We would see in Indian countries, and for those for this podcast, when we talk about Indian country, there are 580 federally recognized tribes in the United States. And we know that in the Twin Cities, we have a very large urban native population. And in fact, I've been in Columbia Heights a couple of times and doing some work for some of our tribal members who actually live, live in this community and, and call this community home. So when you look at that one and what the biggest thing, what I learned about second generation of alcohol is that a young child looks absolutely normal, appears normal. But the one thing that we learned that her biological mother had used alcohol enough, but then stopped during the pregnancy, but did cause permanent brain damage through the fetal alcohol, to the point where the biggest thing they have lost forever is their impulse control. And this is something where it leads into this discussion of, of human trafficking. Because as this, as this behavior started to rear its ugly head in our house, you know, and when you live in a very small community and you have to call your fellow officers to your, your own house to help, you know, deal with a out-of-control child, you know, they really see it. But also you find out, too, is that everybody who says they're going to be there for you flees because when they see the ambulance at your house and they see your daughter being restrained on a stretcher, screaming her head off, all the ones who said they're going to be there just leave. And you truly really are alone in this, in this, in this life's journey. As, as my daughter's Nada's behaviors escalated, you know, my ex-wife and I had to make a very hard decision for the safety of our home, which was we had to look at what we call auto home placement for, because the, the risk in our home and the safety was, was really becoming a serious concern. The challenge is, is that these children who are diagnosed as second generational fall in this gray area where they don't need like a locked behavioral health unit. They're not chemically dependent. And what they really need is a place with some structure for them and, and a little bit of guidance and they'll flourish. But unfortunately, there isn't a place like this. So my daughter went through many placements within the state of Minnesota from northeastern part down to the southern part, trying to find a services to help her, and nothing really fit. And I knew that going in. And her you no know, impulse control, when she'd get frustrated, what she would do is leave or try to run away from the facility. 
And so many times she would leave, law enforcement would be called, they would get her back, you know, back home-wise. Then at one time she was, you know, um, at, at a foster home in Stearns County, Minnesota. That's this kind of how the system works. And she, she left that foster home and uh, was, was an assigned runaway somehow was able to get on the North Star Railway and end up down in the Minneapolis urban area because she knew she had family and some relatives down here. So I knew she was a sign runaway. So again, in the public safety family, we know people and I knew somebody on Metro Transit and I gave him a call and said, listen, my daughter's a signed runaway from Stearns County, somehow she got in a North Star. She's coming down to your facility. She's coming down to the, you know, can you send an officer over there? Here's your photo, you know, to get her in custody and go from there. And of course, sure, my brother will be, we'll keep an eye out for her because when at that time in her life, she started running at about, you know, in her teens and about 14. And the only really services that were available at that time to help try to find her was really the Patty Wetterling Foundation. And Patty was an absolute, uh, just a miracle worker for human trafficking. The second thing we had was we had the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, or the NICMIC. And that's the only resources for Native people that really, really, really had to go to. But I had the unique distinction of being in a family of public safety. And the one thing when I knew she was coming down to the metro area is no matter which agency I called, they were like, send us the Nick Mick poster. We'll put it up in our, you know, in, in, in our police stations. We'll put it up in our ambulance garages. We'll put it up in our fire bays. You know, that's something that most Native families do not get. And that is what we have in public safety. We care for each other. We're brothers and sisters. And no matter what agency I asked, they were like sinister posters because if we come in contact with her, and that's the care we have for each other. So at that time, she got down to the cities on the train. Metro Transit was there. They placed her in custody. And it was Friday. It was about 4.15 in the afternoon. And they called her uh, social worker for, for different agencies handling her case. And basically, she told the uh, Metro Transit officer, well, it's about 4.20. I'm off at 4.30. Unhandcuff her, and I'll deal with it on Monday. And they were like, excuse me? I said, we have her in custody. She's assigned runaway. You're her case manager. The social worker said, well, it's 425 now on Friday. I'm going to go home. So take her handcuffs off. I deal with it. I'll deal with her on Monday. And again, they said, Man, you know, listen, we have her in custody. She is your person on your, on your caseload. She's assigned runaway. And again, he heard on the other side of the phone, now it's 430. I'm going home. So on handcuff her, and this time she was 14 years old, and let her go. 
And the only thing Transit could do was do exactly that. And when that happened, we, we lost absolutely track of her. Had no idea where she went, no idea what was going on, until at that time, uh, St. Paul had a human traffic investigator, and so did Minneapolis. And that's when they started to report. Remember, this is, this is quite a while ago now. She, she had been 26 now uh, as, of, as, of, as of Monday the 16th. At that time, they started seeing her photo on adult sex pages like Backpage and other adult social sites for services. You know, I know now as an investigator, it's these more high-tech things they are using now for human trafficking. But at that time, you know, those adult sites, the back pages was what was being utilized. And then my daughter's picture, and then Lenny saw that in my podcast in, in, in my in my talk, was very seductive. And then we knew she was being human trafficked. The question we had, which even investigators didn't know, is where this was happening at. Because even with technology, it could be from all kinds of places being rerouted through technology for that. So from age 14 to age 16, we knew by the social media postings for her services, we knew she was being human trafficked. But we also knew because of that, she was also alive. Didn't know where, but we knew she was alive. And as a father, it's one of those gut-wrenching things to see your own daughter in photos like that, knowing she's being human trafficked, but have no idea where. At 16 years old, all that social media, all the back pages advertisement stopped. And for a year and a half, there was nothing about her. St. Paul investigator had no leads. Minneapolis had no leads. And this is where Patty Wetterling at that time was really what she does best. Because she, she would constantly call and say, hey, how are you doing? How are you holding up? And when a year and a half went by, you have to ask her. And it's like, Patty, what should I be preparing myself for? It's been a year and a half, and there's been nothing of my daughter. And Patty being Patty was her just herself. And she said, Monty, you need to plan for a funeral. Our experiences in human trafficking is that if this much time has gone by, there is a good chance, a great chance that she's that she's she's dead. But also this is where you, the city comes into because at that time as, as as Chief Austin said, there was a situation here where, Columbia Heights Police Department had recovered a vehicle, had put it in their impound. And if I get this wrong, Chief, please correct me, but 
they found a deceased young girl in the trunk. And I had just caught the news on this, and the age was about correct. The description of her looks were very similar. And I know, and I knew a off. I knew a, I believe a sergeant down here. I think he, I think he's retired from long retired. Who I knew, and I called up, and I just said, "Listen, my daughter's missing. You know, presumed dead." And I heard in the news you found a deceased young teenage girl in in a vehicle, and I sent the photo down. And what do you say? Except to say, if it's her. I will come down and identify the body. And that's the longest phone call you could ever imagine waiting for them to go down and look. And when they called me back and, you know, they said, uh, Monty, it, it isn't your daughter, which part of me was glad, but also there's part of me that says, I'm still back in the same situation. About the year and a half mark, St. Paul police investigator gives me a call and says, Monty, I don't want to get your hopes up, but we think we might have a lead on your daughter. And I said, well, what? How? He said, well, a florist shop in St. Paul just had a young lady come in and buy some flowers. And when she left, the clerk, something just nagged at this clerk. And what she realized is she had Nada's NICMIC or the National Missing Children's Network poster in her flower shop. And something clicked. And she called 911. The investigator came over and said, listen, this young lady came in. She bought some flowers and I, she left. It's something nagging at me. And here's the Nick Mick photo of, of my daughter being, being missing. And they had an address. And St. Paul goes over there. And I'm, I'm assuming they, they did what they did, but they obviously went to the address, a non-English speaking home. A young lady opened the door. They showed the poster to her. And obviously by her body language, they knew something was up. Now, what procedure they follow, I'll never know. But obviously, they needed to get into the house as soon as possible. So whatever they said, they were able to get in. And as we know as officers, we go in. This is a serious situation for officer safety. We basically do felony techniques to go in and clear a house. So they go in there, weapons drawn. They clear the, they, they clear the upper level of the house. Nothing was there. It's, it was a two-level house. They go downstairs doing the same thing, announcing themselves, officer safety, weapons drawn. In the basement, there was kind of a game room, as I was told about it. And as they were passing the game room, there was a couch that was facing the screen with, with the Xbox. And for some reason, one of the officers had looked down and he saw a pair of shoes that were standing vertical toe to heel, which shoes don't do on themselves. So as officers do, this is officer safety. They kick the couch out of the way. You know, weapons drawn, show me your hands. Was what we do to make sure that we keep the, the person safe and we keep ourselves as responders safe. 
And they got the person cuffed. They didn't know who it was. They sat her up and it was my daughter. And she was alive. But as many investigators say in human trafficking, when, when they are rescued or, you know, or recovered, they don't say anything. And that was exactly what my daughter did, exactly what victims of human trafficking do. Didn't say anything about what happened or anything. And that's a very typical response to human trafficking. And it's one of those things where in, as we say in Indian country, we call it missing and murdered indigenous women. And the one thing that you do not hear much of is a victim being recovered alive. And that is one thing all the Native advocates who were helping me at that time and supporting me said afterwards what the percentages is for recovering a Native American human traffic girl alive. And I look at this and say, this is where our family of public safety comes in, which many Native families across the United States do not have or have access to or have that connection to with that. When she was recovered alive, we, we, we had to find an, another placement for her. And luckily, we, we found a place up in, up in uh, Bemidji, Minnesota, which is for older teens who are about to age out, kind of a group home. It was very good for her at that time. And she was doing pretty good there. And something one day at an alternate school, you know, just bugged her. And she needed to tell the, 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 the school resource officer finally what is happening in her life. He knew what to do. And just like you are as an investigator, they had one who was specially trained at Corner House. He had all the right trainings. And it, it, it is a unique skill set to interview a human trafficking victim because of what their trafficker has done to their mind. And this investigator had the right tools, plus they also had the right place um, for interviewing victims of sexual violence and sexual assault and domestic violence. They called Hope House in Bemidji at the time, where most times when my daughter was caught back from her running, it was the traditional police department, sheriff's department, standard interrogation room, which is not a place where it's welcoming and opening for these kinds of interviews. And everything just was the right environment, the properly trained, you know, investigator. And my daughter opened up finally about what had happened to her. And this was not like a two-hour interview. This turned out to be 12 hours, four hours one evening and almost eight hours the next and she finally was able to tell what had happened to her during being human trafficked, what her traffickers did to control her, 
which is very typical in human trafficking, was it was physical injury, physical assault. And they would beat her in her abdominal area on, on her back because they did not want to do any damage to her face or any other parts for human trafficking. So they could hit her in her abdominal area, and that's how they physically controlled her during those two weeks. And it's one of those things where, you know, as, as, as one of this family, I wanted the report. And, and the investigator gave me the report and, you know, no parent, even one in public safety, ever wants to read the graphic details of what somebody did to their daughter. And it was very, very detailed and very graphic. But at least for myself, now I knew what trauma she had gone through. She did not graduate high school in Bemidji, Minnesota. She actually aged out and she wanted to return to the, to, to the metro area. And that's what she always wanted to live at. Uh, she did come down here. And as... You know, her Ojibwe name, as we call it, means is interpretive as a fierce, passionate woman. And my daughter was exactly that. She was strong. She was resilient. And through all the trauma that she survived, she took it upon herself to find a, uh, it was uh, up in Anoka Hennepin Technical College. It was a program for adults who did not complete their high school diploma to go back and actually, and actually attain one. And she did this on her own. And at age 20, on her own, she completed her high school diploma. And it was one thing that how her brain processes she got into one of her funks and really didn't want any myself or 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 her mother there, and I was not going to let that fly because I am on her father. And uh, so I went down there. I knew it was going to be at. I, I brought a, a traditional gift for her, and I was hoping it'd be a big auditorium so I could just sit in the dark. And fortunately, it was a small classroom, and I knew I was like I can't even get in there. But I sat in the hallway, and I and I got to see my daughter get her high school diploma. And I gave her principal a very nice gift. I said, I'm her father. Um, I know she doesn't want me here. And um, just give this to her. And, and I left. And coming up Highway 65, back to where I live on, uh, up, 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 in, up in Malax County, to my surprise, because the kids, kids don't call their parents, but they text them a lot, is, you know, she said, you know, Dad, if I knew you were there, I, I, would, I wanted you to see me graduate. But the one unique thing that we did when she did turn 20 is, as Lenny heard in my story, is we were at a, at a, at a celebrating her 20th birthday here and actually went out to Maple Grove and went to a nice restaurant. And really one of those memorable times as any parent is really having just a really heart-to-heart father-daughter conversation. And when the dinner got wrapped up, it's one of those things she said, Dad, before we go, and she's like, I want to tell you something. And that was the only reason I'm alive, Dad, is because you 
never gave up on me. For everything I did for you to give up, you never did. And that's one of those conversations that any father will never forget. My daughter was doing well in her life. She, was, she, she, she found full-time employment. She had an apartment in, in Brooklyn Park. She did have a, a very nice gentleman in her life for about five years, but it was a very rocky relationship because of her, of her fetal alcohol syndrome. And they came to a mutual agreement that it, it was not going not gonna, to not gonna last. And I told her boyfriend at the time, I understand that because her way of processing with her brain and how she looks at things will never go away. There is no therapy for this. There is no pill she can take for this. And anybody in her life, this is, the, this is what they're going to be living with. So when that ended at five years, it was very mutual and I was very, and I was very honored. And I told him that how much I appreciated him in her life. And I totally understand that for his well-being, it had to end. And at that time, uh, she's she living in, in Brooklyn Park at that time uh, on Douglas Avenue. And we helped, and I helped to move her from a one apartment down to a different apartment. And, and th life was good until May 26. And on May 26, my life changed. And it changed in a way where it was a normal day at work. I was actually trying to leave at a decent time, but unfortunately we had we had a house fire on Mille Lacs and being also a tribal firefighter, we do what we do, we bunkered up. I got on scene and did what we do, did a 360, did a smoke report to the oncoming fire department, figured where the hydrant was, planning, you know, kind of a planning series attack. The house was abandoned luckily, so there's no, no loss, and loss, loss of life in there. And as we were doing the response of putting the fire out, my now ex-wife was texting me constantly. And I'm like, I don't have time for this right now. I got to do my job here. And so I was three hours past my shift, making sure this fire scene was safe, you know, making sure the area was secure. And then my other daughter texted me and said, Dad, you have to call home. This is an emergency. So finally called and for all of us who are responders and most all of us in our careers have to sometime in our life give that gut-wrenching death notice and we know when we do that what responses we hear from those families from those spouses from those children. And when I called my now ex-wife, that is what I heard on the other end of the phone. And all my response to her was, she's dead, isn't she? Because when we hear that grief and that screaming, and all of us who have had to give death notices know exactly what I'm talking about. That is what I heard. And that's when I knew. 
And so I got home and what do we do as responders? We go to what muscle memory is and what our training is. And we had to notify family. And that is probably the worst phone call I've ever had to make is to the three sets of grandparents who have their own health issues and try to call them at 11 o'clock at night and get them out of bed and trying to tell them that their granddaughter is dead and not having it comprehended. I also realized I had to notify my brothers and sisters in public safety. So a next call went to Greg Hayes, who at that time was with, was with Midwalken Fire. And I just, Greg, my daughter was murdered. I need you to do two things. I need you to notify everybody in, in our public safety family. Two is, as part of our traditional Ojibwe funeral, is we have to feed everybody for the wake and the funeral, and I need everybody to bring food. And Greg being Greg just said, my brother, I've got you. Take care of your family. We got the rest. As part of our traditional Ojibwe funeral, we do things, it's, it's a four-day process. And as part of that, we do a lot of cultural things that my wife and I got to do for my daughter. Um, and also, we had to find, we call it a spiritual advisor, a spiritual leader to do the actual ceremony. And we have a very strong Native woman called Ababatal Boyd, who I offered tobacco to, because she's also a very strong Native woman. And she, was, and she accepted that to do Native traditional wake and her funeral with that. She guided us what we have to do for a funeral with that one. Um, part of one of the things we have to do is we have to wash the body with cedar water, and we were allowed to do that. And it's one of those things where the funeral home, you know, was very honest about this. Uh, and she said, you know, uh, she was murdered and, and she was shot, which I knew. What I did know is on that morning of May 26, that Channel 9 News was covering a shots fired call at this apartment in Brooklyn Park, which I did not know. The call came in as the shots fired, multiple shots fired, and it turned into a barricaded suspect in the Brooklyn Park apartments. And they could not reason or talk out the individual and they end up, bringing the, end up bringing their SWAT team in to actually breach the window to access the apartment. What I didn't know in this story was that Fire Chief John Cunningham, who I've known for about 30 years, was one of the incident commanders on scene during this. And when they were able to breach the apartment, they had found that my daughter had been shot with an AR-15 rifle, uh, was shot three times in, in, in the center of her chest. She pretty much died instantly. Um, and he was there. Uh, he was away from the scene. And when, when they identified the body, and he just was like, and I did not know this to, to a different podcast. And he said, Monty, I just couldn't call you. Who else would have that name and her description? And he said, 
we all knew. And I did not know that story till later on. And that's how this public safety family is, is, is an amazing gift to have when this worst case scenario could ever happen to a family. As we got ready for the third day, we called the wake and we had it up in our District 2 community by McGregor. You don't know who's going to show up. You know, I needed six male in native pallbearers as part of what we do. And that was taking care of it. In fact, all, the, all my northern tribal emergency managers were all native men. And I knew Greg Hayes was taking care of things. And when the wake began, and I walked out into that gymnasium and I saw all the uniforms. It just took your breath away because that's what we do for our own. There were community members there, but the uniforms from all public safety family in dress uniforms was just an unbelievable gift and an honor, and it filled up that community center. And Babata is an amazing who does, who does the actual ceremony, and she did everything in our Ojibwe language, which is a little challenging for all the responders listening to this process because they didn't understand anything what was going on. But what she does do is at the end, she's an amazing storyteller also. And she got done with the first night. She sat in a chair with her, we call it a ribbon skirt on. And she explained the whole ceremony in English, why we do this for our indigenous, for all Ojibwe people with that one. And all the responders were just saying afterward, that was an amazing story. The second day was the actual funeral, and uh, and it was a very beautiful day with that one. And the responders heard the end of the story, which is in our community, is once a certain part happens, as we say, the spirit leaves the body, and it goes to a place we call the place of everlasting happiness, where there's no pain. There's no sorrow. And when that happens, we have to stop grieving. Because the stories tell us from our elders that if we continue to grieve, they won't be happy where they're going. And they'll want to come back. So once her spirit is sent off, unlike many cultures who grieve continuously and maybe years as Ojibwe, once that part is done, it's done and her spirit is sent off. And that is a story that many of my fellow responders who came heard and just commented that that was the most beautifulest thing they have ever heard was that, that we have to let them go. Where many cultures don't do that and they hang on to grief forever or long periods of time. And that, and that was a Memorial Day weekend. I went to work on Tuesday. And many of my people who were like, what are you doing here? 
I'm like, her spirit's traveled. It's done. But that that's a cultural thing that they do not understand. Because people say, I would never let my, my person come back to work that soon. I said, well, this is a cultural thing. And it was done. She's in a better place right now. I know where she's at. But on that last day of the funeral, and that's why I think why I do this for, is all the advocates who's, who just are proud, mostly Native women in the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Movement came up to me after and really said, Monty, when you are ready, you need to tell your daughter's story. Because who we hear from is the mothers, the grandmothers, the aunties, the sisters, and the cousins. Who we don't hear from are the Native fathers. And in your case, a tribal responder father. Because Nada's passion was to get some type of human services degree and help other indigenous and native girls and women who've been human trafficked. And that was always her wish, is to go and help others because of what she went through herself. And she never got to do that. So if I am, I guess, the conduit as her father to take her passion that she never got to do and to tell the story to help others, and that's, that's why I'm here today, is to do that. I know my daughter's story is still relevant. Now it's been two years since her passing, since her murder. But I do know that another indigenous family, it'll be their story in the future. Because this is an epidemic that affects all Indian country. And the one thing that I have been told many times by families whose loved ones are still missing is, Monty, you have closure. This was a murder-suicide when she was murdered. But I know where my daughter is at. She's in the cemetery across from my house. And there are native families across Indian country that have been waiting 10, 15, 20, 30 years and may never have closure. And I have that. And that's the story. This has been Roll Call. Our next episode will feature our follow-up conversation with Monty Franck. Thank you for joining us.